welcome to our podcast. This is Dr. Jack, and I have a very special guest today that I'm very excited about. Uh, another reason I'm very excited to have our guest is I get to talk to another human being for a change, and th- that's going to be really good uh, instead of just me monologuing for an hour, right? So let me go through the introduction, introduce my guest, and uh, we'll have our conversation and give you a little bit of an outline of what we're going to talk about today. So this is Dr. Diane Finley. And she, hey, and she, I'm looking over here to read my notes. <laughs> She's a full <laughs> professor in the psych department at Prince George's Community College in Largo, Maryland, outside of DC. She's also an adjunct at the University of Maryland Global Campus. And I can mention that we're colleagues at Highline College, right? And uh, we've no, actually known each other for a long time, only over email. So it's really refreshing to be able to chat. And her training is in developmental and social psychology with a specialty in sport psychology. That's going to be our focus today. She's a national certified counselor and is a certified mental performance consultant, um, abbreviated AASP. She received her Association for Applied Sports Psychology. Applied Sports Psychology. Oh, thank you. Okay. And she received her doctoral degree from the University of Maryland College Park. Okay. So you do have research. So you do research focused on your recent research, focused on several aspects of sports psychology, recently completed a study of cross-cultural attitudes uh, about women's participation in sport with colleagues from Argentina and Australia. And it was published in Argentina. Very cool. All right. And also just to mention that uh, Dr. Diane, I'll address you as Diane because we're colleagues. We talked about that, right? And for the students listening out there, always err on the side of professional titles for as a professional courtesy, unless your instructor, you know, has a strong preference to go by their first name or a professor or Mr. or Ms. Right. And so that's why in some interviews, I'm always addressing my guest as Dr. So-and-so, but in this case, we'll go at a first name basis. Right. Okay. And, uh, Diane here is an online specialist. Okay. In terms of online education, I thought I've been teaching online for a long time. You've beat me by maybe five to 10 more years of experience. And so uh, she actually has written, uh, I think it was a student workbook, right? For one of yes. Philip Zimbardo, Dr. Zimbardo's uh, yes. tech textbooks, right? I did. And you've won uh, teaching awwards, an award for excellence teaching at a two-year college, right? Yes. Uh, so you have a lot of recognition. And more importantly, uh, you are the president-elect of Division Two of the American Psychological Association. So that's the Society for Teaching of Psychology, which I'm also a member of. That's STP, right? Yay. And uh, you recently completed service as a director of professional development for STP. And uh, you serve on the APA Committee on Associate and Baccalaureate Education. Okay. So you're heavily- I actually just completed my term on CABE. I rotated off in December. Oh, okay. I have to fix that bio part. <laughs> so it's fine. And also, and this is interesting too, because when I've, I teach online, as everyone knows, and so uh, I've come across uh, quality matters or QM, yes. right? And you're actually a master reviewer and, you've, and you've created your own, just like me, but you've created 10 online courses. So that means 10 different subjects. Is that correct? Is it that is. It's 10 different courses. 10 different. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And so what's interesting is, is that I, I met Diane really just through email, through mass emails in our department. And we were the two, I think, at the time that were yes. 
physically remote from the college, right? right? Even though others taught online. So I think that's kind of how we became familiar with one another. And as I reached out to people to talk uh, and have conversations on this podcast, you, and I didn't know this about you, you talked about your sports psychology background. Yes. And I thought that was very interesting. Okay. So here's what to expect today for the listeners. Okay. We're going to have two segments, right? And the first segment which I, I will want to do with every guest that I have who is a professional psychologist to talk about how you got to where you are, sort of like a, a brief overview of from student to grad student to professional, how you got there. I, I think a lot of students would want to know because I think it can be intimidating always listening to the experts or those with doctoral degrees and wonder, oh, am I capable you know, of getting there as well. You know, how does someone get there? That sounds interesting. So that will be our first segment. And then we'll take a brief pause. And then our second segment, we'll take our deeper dive and focus on the field of sports psychology, which I, you know, just from the sound of it, you would think you kind of know what it means, but it can be very, very different. Yeah. Even for myself, who is in the field, right? There's so many specialty fields that we really don't know what we do, you know, in, in people in other fields. Okay. All right. So let's just get started. So okay. uh, Diane, from your position today, let's, let's reverse timeline it. How did you decide from the very onset to be a, were you a psych major as an undergrad? Let's start there. I was not. <laughs> um, I actually started out as a political science major and I wanted to be a political science journalist like Cokie Roberts. And if you don't know who Cokie Roberts yes. was, then you should go Google her because um, she really was a role model for um, all journalists, particularly for any female who aspired to be a journalist. And I actually had met her because um, we're from Louisiana and then we moved up to outside um, the DC area. Um, Her father was a Senator from Louisiana who was killed in a plane crash um, in Alaska her mother took over the Senate seat, the congressional seat. Interesting. And, um, but before he was killed, we were invited to a reception at his house. My brother was applying to West Point, and it was, I'm not even sure exactly how, but somehow I remember going to that house for a reception. I was probably 15. But I had been working for what was then called the Baltimore News American. It's a defunct newspaper. I started as a sophomore in high school, I actually was a professional journalist. I had a journalism card. How cool is that? I went into um, the office on Saturdays. I had to take a bus, which I mean, and then I had to walk probably three quarters of a mile through downtown Baltimore. I look back now and I'm like, I think my parents were kind of crazy to (laughs) let me do some of, some of what I had to do, but I got hired and I made a dollar 65 an hour. Mm. I was so excited. Um, (laughs) But um, I was published every week, and then they had a special section for teenagers in the News American that was published on the weekends, and I was a writer for that section. Wow. Oh, by the way, did you keep clippings of your articles? From I have them? all of them. I have a scrapbook. My mother <gasps> that made. That is amazing. My mother made a scrapbook for me. That's um, cool. The editor was a Pulitzer Prize winner journalist who had decided that teens, and this was really long time ago, had decided that teens should have their own voice. And so he started this. I was a teen correspondent for one year, and then he hired me to be an actual writer, paid writer um, for the 
thing. So at that point, I wanted to be a political reporter. Um, and in college, my um, political science professor was the Democratic National Committee woman from the state of Maryland. So she took us to all kinds of things. We got to go behind the scenes in Congress. We got to go to political fundraising dinners. Um, I remember nice. we worked one for Hubert Humphreys. Um, and so we we got a lot of insight into things that were going on. I got a little disgusted with the election of 1972. <laughs> and I said, I don't want to do this. And um, at that point, I had enough credits to be an English major mm-hmm. because I had been taking English courses along with the political science. So this fork in the road or, or change, what year in, in school were you at that I time? I was probably a junior. Junior. But I had enough credits. Yeah. And I had also taken courses to be certified as a teacher because my father had said, get certified as a teacher. You can always find a job. Now, that wasn't entirely true because there have been times when right now you can find a job if you're a certified teacher. Mm. That's not always been the case. Right. Um, but um, back then, we used to listen to our parents. <laughs> he said, do this. And so I did. And because they were really helping to pay for a lot of school. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he, my parents had no problem saying, if you don't do this, then you won't have tuition next semester. So well, actually, there are a lot of students today who still have that kind of pressure and demands from their parents. Right. Yeah. And so yeah. and and they never really <laughs> demand anything that was untoward, but they knew that we needed um, a college education. My dad was mm-hmm. first generation mm-hmm. and um, he had actually earned his way through both college and graduate school on athletic scholarships and high school, as a matter of fact. He went to a private high school on an athletic scholarship. Oh. So my grandmother was a single parent um, who ran a boarding house. And so um, I know where his push for you're going to go to college and finish and yeah. you're going to do something that will let you get a job. I know where it came from. And and it served me well. I mean, it wasn't, you know, he didn't make me major in something that I didn't like. He looked at what I was doing and said, certification will help you get a job. So, um, so I switched, I got, I also got the degree in education and after I graduated from college, I taught high school for a couple of years. Um, and then I decided that I really liked the writing. Yeah. And, um, also my brother who was in the army at that point, um, had been stationed in Germany and the army ran air flights to Germany for families for $300 round trip. <laughs> so I took off a semester yeah. and I mean, I quit my teaching job and I took off and I went to Europe and backpacked around because I could nice. fly back and forth for $300. Yeah. Yeah. I had a, a URL pass. I had a hospital pass. Um, and I just spent about two, three months just backpacking around Europe. Um, and this was when you had to go to the post office to make a long distance phone call. Right. So, it, I mean, did I you was ever new. call? Did you ever call collect? Oh, that's the only way I called. <laughs> Young people today have no idea what that means. <laughs> right. That's the only way I could have called. I didn't, you know, it, it just sit the there and the person feed. on the receiving end pays for the call. Right. Right. Just right. sit there and feed feed coins in would have been yeah. insane. Yeah. But um, so I did that, and then I came back and I went to um, the University of Florida for a writing program, and um, at when it got near the end of that year, um, my dad was transferred from um, Maryland back to Louisiana. 
And my youngest brother wanted to finish high school in Maryland. So I left the program at University of Florida, moved back to Maryland, got another teaching job through the vice principal at my brother's high school. He got me interviewed. And then from there, I got the job. Um, And I took custody of my brother so he could finish high school. Really? Yes. Interesting. So so I'm in my mid-20s. with your legal guardian, yeah. 18-year-old. And when you get called by the principal's office to come down and talk to him because stuff that happened. So that was a sort of interesting little interlude. And while I was was teaching um, that year, I had a student come into my class one morning and say, my parents just kicked me out of the house. What do I do? And I'm sitting there going, uh, they didn't really cover that in my education courses. So yeah, I went down, I called the counselor and, and got them involved in dealing with the situation. But I realized that a lot of the things I was having to deal with, I didn't really know how to deal with. So then I decided I was going to go get a degree in counseling, which I did. So uh-huh. I went and I got my master's in counseling um, sort of thing. Um, I did my internship at... Um, what is now um, University of Louisiana, Louisiana Lafayette. It was called University of Southwestern Louisiana then, mm-hmm. then Lafayette. Um, and um, I ended up getting a job at the Catholic Student Center as a counselor when I finished my master's. The Catholic Student Center is smack dab in the middle of their campus. They have a 100-year lease for a dollar. Yeah. The parish, and if you're not from Louisiana, you would know it as a county, yeah. um, is about 85% Catholic. And so I always thought it was a little odd that, or I'm not, I'm sitting there going, going back to my political science, isn't there a separation of church and state? And, <laughs> but, but I learned not to raise those kinds of issues. <laughs> and, and it was very convenient because we were smack dab in the middle of campus. And so students would come and use our lounges in between classes and stuff. And so we had a lot of traffic yeah. Yeah. and because so many of them were Catholic, they kind of, um, were drawn to the Catholic Student Center to for those sorts of things. So um, I spent a couple of years there as a counselor. Let me ask you a question real quick. Sure. Uh, two questions. Uh, first, regarding the Catholicism, was it faith-based counseling or is just counseling as we know it just happened to be within that particular institutional well, it, no, setting? My, my degree in counseling is from Louisiana State. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I did not go through a pastoral counseling program, yeah. which is one that is set within the realms of um, religion. Mm-hmm. Um, however, okay. I've because I had done a lot of work in those areas, um, I was comfortable dealing with students when they would bring in those sorts of things. Yeah. It really wasn't very often. And there wasn't any, um, nobody was looking over my shoulder asking, what are you talking about clients uh, with or anything else? So right. it was really just... Um, I think the pastor at that time had realized that he needed a trained counselor on staff um, because um, so even back then um, there were so many kids who had more issues yeah. and needed somebody who, ha- who had training beyond just sitting and listening because there's right. a difference. And, you know, there's a difference yeah. between giving advice, listening to somebody and being a trained counselor right. with all of the, the skills and yeah. everything else that we bring. I was fortunate in that, because I had done my internship at the student counseling center and they only had one counselor there. So wow. he was thrilled when I, I got hired <laughs> um, because he could refer 
if he if somebody needed a female counselor, that gave him a female counselor right. on campus, and he was comfortable with my skills. It also gave me a supervisor, yeah, on site because you know your first couple of years you need a supervisor, right? And because it takes a, quite a while before you're really feeling much more, and even frankly, even now, um, most people have somebody with whom they can consult a colleague right. because you you need that kind of extra set of ears and somebody else to look at it maybe a little more objectively. Yeah. So he was able to provide that role for me, which worked out great because I felt much more comfortable. And so we were able to do things back and forth. We did some couples counseling uh, yeah. together. and stuff. Oh yeah. That dynamic. I would love to be able to dive into that deeper. The, the so dynamic just, of, yeah. Couples counseling with, with two counselors is, is very interesting. I've done that before in my training. And my first year of training was also in the university counseling center. I think uh, for those who are pursuing a degree in counseling or clinical, I think that's a great place just to ease into it and learn your skills and get great supervision. And supervision, like you said, is very important. And, and my second question is a little bit uh, further back was a lot of a lot of my listeners often have the question of, you know, do I need an undergrad degree in psych to go into master's. So when you made that jump from your undergrad degree to go into a master's of psych program, mm-hmm. especially clinical or counseling, were there any, how difficult was that? How did you answer the question of, well, what are you doing here? <laughs> and uh, coursework wise, were there any things you needed to catch up on as prerequisites to get in the door? No, I was fortunate that there were no prerequisites that I didn't have. Oh. Um, I'm not even sure there were any prerequisites. Um, it was so long ago, I can't even yeah, remember, but, yeah. but I had no problem being accepted um, into the program. Um, I did not have, because I had like educational psychology and adolescent psychology as an undergrad. I never took intro, which I think was a prerequisite for those. So for I'm, not those quite sure, <laughs> I'm not quite sure how I managed to not have to take the prerequisite, right. but I'm not arguing now about, yeah, about yeah. that. Um so um, within the counseling, really, there, the program that I was in, looking at the courses that I took, because we did not really have statistics and research. This was purely a practice-related program. Oh, okay. mm-hmm. it was, there wasn't even an option to do a thesis, which I now regret because I think that sh- if you have that option, you should take it because it opens your other options if you decide later on you want to go on. Yeah. Because... Yeah. I mean, when I finished my bachelor's, I said, I am never going back to school. Yeah, well, and then when I got (laughs) near the end of my master's, I was like, I'm not going any further. So it doesn't matter if I'm not doing a thesis. Well, down the road, it could have mattered. It turned out not to, but it could have really mattered that I had not done the thesis. And so so I was fortunate. I didn't find the coursework um, difficult. Um, I had um, very strong... Um, undergraduate education, liberal arts education, lots of philosophy courses, um, lots of English and writing courses with um, faculty who really held us to very high standards. And so I really didn't, I mean, you know, it's new information. It's a lot of reading. You had to read everything that you could find. You had to read all the journals. You had to read the textbooks. You had to do all of that. So um, the workload, You had that really strong verbal skill right. set right. for and, language. Yeah. 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 And so, and so that, and um, I had kind of a sense of what counseling was about. I'm, I'm assuming that um, on the essay 
that you write for admission about why you want to do it. When I talked about, you know, having this student come in and then I'm just like, uh, okay, what do I do kind of thing? You know, there was a a reason why I was looking to do um, a change in, in majors, a change in career sort of thing. And so um, fortunately I, I didn't run into a problem. Yeah. Um, So that personal statement of why you want to go into this field, perhaps the face-to-face interview. We didn't have face-to-face interviews. Oh, really? So, so that personal statement just by itself. Yeah. Because you can't just look at your transcript and figure out why you're going into counseling. And, and they look and, and grades. I mean, grades were important. Mm -hmm. um, GPA. um, And trying to remember, I know I took, I took the GRE, I took the Miller's analogy test, and I don't remember whether I took them for the master's program or for the doctoral program. Right, right, right. So I don't remember whether I had to have tests for that or not. Um, you know, it's yeah. not something I've... Um, but but for I've, those who have a bachelor's in English or biology and they're thinking about right. going to a master's of psych, it's right. totally doable. Right. I, yeah. I took the GRE in English. <laughs> <laughs> That was the most difficult exam I've ever taken because they had quotes from books and you had to identify who said the quote. Oh, wow. Really? I remember that. Yeah. Now, now it's coming back. I had blanked it out, but so I did have some GRE scores and, mm-hmm. and, and they were, I mean, they were decent scores. I mean, they weren't yeah. like, uh, so I may have, I don't remember whether I had to submit them or not, but I had, and I guess taking those tests shows that I can take standardized tests because yeah. to be certified as a counselor, to be a national certified counselor, NCC, through the National NCCB and, and American Counseling Association, um, you do have to pass a standardized national standardized test. Um, I took that um, when I finished my, um, actually, it was a couple of years after my counseling program because the exam didn't come about and certification yeah. didn't come about until two or three years after I was out. How, how is that national certification different from what we know as the LPC, Licensed Professional Counseling? That's, that's done by the states. Those are that's at the state level, right? right just like license, just level. like licensed psychologists. Just, yes, it's just like any license. And explain to our listeners what that means when a license is only at the state level. Well, it's licensing is a function of mm-hmm. state agencies, and I'm assuming that it may be granted somehow at some federal sort of level. But you cannot. It's just like hairdressers are licensed. Plumbers yeah. are licensed. Any license like that, and my hairdresser's license would come out of the same office as my counseling license. Because when <laughs> when Marilyn finally got got the LPC credential, which I decided not to go for because I wasn't counseling anymore then, and it can be expensive to both get a license right. and it's expensive to keep it up because of the continuing education. Right. CEUs, it's expensive right. enough to keep up with the with just the NCC, the the counseling certification. Mm-hmm. Um, and some schools who are looking at counselors want an NCC, someone NCC and LPC. So, right. you know, it's, it's, it's so to cover your bases once yeah, you pass and, the exam. And my personal take is that, you know, I feel like if you have a license to practice in state A, your skills should be good enough to practice in state B through Z. But yet, you know. The way it's well, set up is it's sort of like you. Well, if I go I, from Texas, if I had a license and I moved to Louisiana, then what does that mean? Either there's a reciprocity thing some, going on. Some states have reciprocity. Yeah. Um, I know American retested. Counseling Association. I know American Counseling Association is 
working to make that reciprocity across all the states. Yeah. Um, but there are some states, Texas, California, for some reason, I think Mississippi and Louisiana, who also require you to go through their particular licensing. And it's not necessarily retaking the exam, but you have to take like Texas history. Oh, interesting. Or Mississippi history. So some of yeah. those have some particular requirements that they have put in. It's sort of interesting during the pandemic, um, APA came out and said, if you are licensed in a state and you have a client in another state, it's okay to do telehealth. It's it's ethical to do telehealth during the pandemic. I believe that's come to an end. I'm not entirely certain. Oh, so they temporarily waived that. They temporarily waived those boundaries because yeah. people were, first of all, there was such a demand for mental health counseling, yeah. but also um, in the Maryland D.C., Virginia area, you have to be licensed in all three jurisdictions Wow! because I have a consultation group. And a lot of times people will be emailing back and forth. I need somebody licensed in D.C. because I had an inquiry about somebody who wants and I'm only licensed in Virginia. Right. And so do you, do you have any insight as to whether that reciprocity will be will become, you know, break down all the state barriers at some point? I think because eventually online therapy. I think eventually now? it will. I think. Yeah. Um, I suspect that the next, there was a little bit uh, in the ethics code, the, the most recent, most recent, and I can't remember the date that it came out, most recent ethics code, both in the APA and the ACA codes, those are two separate codes, um, some crossover, um, both sort of address teletherapy, which is really what it's being called now is teletherapy. Yeah. Um, I suspect that the next iterations will have much more on the things I do know you have to have, if you do it, you have to have a HIPAA compliant platform that you use. And that is not even related to the counseling component of it. It's related to the um, patient privacy, medical part, the patient yeah, privacy, the, yeah, because yeah. they, because L, even if you're licensed as a psychologist or a counselor, you are governed by those rules that come out, the uh, federal agencies that put out like HIPAA. The most recent rule that they have just put out, and it went into effect January 1st, I don't know if you've seen it, hmm. where you have to give clients, and there's been a lot of discussion about it, um, like an estimate. It's like now hospitals have to give you an estimate of what's going to cost for something right, right. so that they can't surprise you that your anesthesiologist yeah, right. is out of, out of yeah, network. No surprise billing, yeah. That means that counselors and psychologists, licensed counselors, licensed psychologists must also do that. Oh, so a lot of the questions have been, well, if I don't take insurance, and a lot of people don't take insurance, they'll give you the codes or whatever you need to file for it. But many people are self-pay because insurance is just a big pain in the neck. By the way, if you want to practice and you're not licensed, you won't ever get any insurance payments. Oh. And that means that it's really difficult to have a private practice. Yeah. The people I know who are, who are not taking insurance have been in practice for a very long time and have a very well- yeah, well set, established. Yeah. Well established set of clients so that they don't have to take insurance. Right. They're still going to be able to make Some a doctors living. are doing that too. The medical right. doctors are doing yes. Yeah, just they're cash only. To, yeah. Right. And or they're going to like these boutique practices. Yeah. Um, but for just about everybody starting out, there's almost no way to do it unless you get on the provider list for the various insurance companies and so forth. And and the reality is they pay less. Um than if you self-pay and they also pay um, 
less to like social workers, licensed clinical social workers, mm-hmm. um, who, so counselors and, and psychologists are kind of competing with the LCSW for some of those dollars. I think that insurance companies are going to be under more pressure to cover more mental health treatment. Yeah. I mean, I can't guarantee this, yeah. but we've seen a diminution of it over the last few years and how much they'll cover. Um, I suspect that we're going to see that increase because um, companies that, um, which is really where insurance companies make a lot of money because your company offers XYZ companies, these three companies, they're going to have to do it if they want to be competitive for the really large companies that offer yeah. insurance to like thousands of people yeah. and stuff. And and I'm, I'm not clairvoyant or anything, but I would bet the federal government's going to have some mandates about much more having to cover that. Yeah. Because for, for a while it was, it all had to be covered and then it sort of went way down. And now we've seen much more of a rise. So it'll be interesting to sort of see what happens. You know, I've seen calls out, we need more school counselors. Well, maybe you should fund the programs and fund the graduate students to get the degrees so that you would have the counselors. Just stop doing that. I mean, you cut, I've, I've lobbied on Capitol Hill for American Psych Association, and they've cut a lot of those over the last 10 years, they've cut a lot of those programs that used to fund graduate study and it related to mental health kinds of things. Right. So, you know, well, mental health and the psychology side has always been the stepchild, you know, the second class citizen in terms of funding, right. And, and recognition and insurance payments. And it's never quite reached that level of equality with traditional medicine and medical treatment, right? That's something that our field's always been fighting for, some parity, yeah. And well, and it's, you know, it's even the fact that we have to talk about mental health and physical health instead of just talking about health Health. insurance. Yeah, exactly. And so, um, you know, hopefully I'll live to see that. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But um, I I just think the pandemic exacerbated so much. Yeah. That... um, that may be an upside to it that that brought to light a lot of these issues. And so maybe yeah. we'll begin to see some movement. I think um, so. Yeah. You know, I I mean I don't know, but it's it, it reminds me of cancer treatment and how it's funded. It's almost like you have to have the flavor of the month and it's in the news and or you have a celebrity promoting it or advocating for it. Then suddenly people are aware of this disease, you know, X, Y, and Z. And you're right. I think the pandemic just inflamed mental health issues to the forefront, well, just rose to the surface. Right. Yeah. Well, well, I think, and I think one thing that, that gives me hope and that's sort of indicative of it is, and this is a little bit with sports um, in the United States, it, because the Olympics are coming up starting on February 3rd, in case anybody didn't know, um, assuming yep. that um, <laughs> there are enough quiet, athletes. It's going to be a very have, quiet Olympics. Well, <laughs> One of the major Russian male figure skaters just tested positive for COVID. So he's out of the, the oh, wow. Olympics. Yeah. Um, and the sad thing is you could test positive and be asymptomatic. Yeah. yeah. And you still can't go. But um, this is less than a year ago. And um, the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee, the USOPC, it used to be called USOC. Oh, wait, and let, now- me pa- let me pause for a second because okay. um, I want to spend... Uh, a couple minutes just because of the way zoom records and I want to have two segments. Okay. Uh, Your professional journey, right. Uh, Going from the master's degree to the doctoral degree, spend a few minutes there. Then we'll pause. Okay. Okay. And then we'll start up again and and 
and okay. talk a lot about sports. Right. Okay. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say they created yeah. a mental health registry along with a performance mm-hmm. registry. So even they have recognized uh, how important mental, mental health, health is. And so that kind of gives me a little hope that maybe we'll have other things. But anyway, yeah. so after I got my master's, I worked um, as a counselor um, for a couple of years at um, USL, ULL now. And I decided that what I really liked in the counseling were the workshops that I did, uh-huh. which really is teaching. So yeah. I'm sort of coming back around because I used to play teacher when I was a little girl. My mother was a teacher. My grandmother was a teacher. <laughs> my aunt was a teacher. And, you know, I'm always the it's one in that the had, blood, the little, yeah. uh-huh. I had the little chalkboard up and, you know, and stuff. And so, but I also knew that I didn't want to teach high school anymore. And I knew that in order to teach college, I needed the PhD that that would open my options. You can get a job with a master's at a two-year school. Yes. You cannot get a job at a four-year school or university without the PhD. Right. And so I um, moved back to Maryland. I got a job teaching high school again. Um, and I started graduate school part-time because I had to reestablish residency. I could, and I wasn't going to take out, you know, $200,000 in loans. I, I paid my oh, way yeah. to graduate school. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, um, I, and I took like one or two classes a semester and then, um, I got an assistantship and um, was able to go full time. I had residency again and and the assistantship covered the tuition anyway. So um, did that. I graduated. Um, I got a job at a small four-year university down South. um, And then, which was not a terribly good fit for me, but my father also um, started having some health issues. So I resigned, moved back up here to take care of him. spent a year trying to figure out what was going on. Hadn't died. I was pretty sure it was Alzheimer's, um, but I needed to get all the legal documents in order. We need to do all kinds of other tests to eliminate any other possibilities um, because you have to do that. Um, I, so I did nothing but that for a year. And then I started teaching part-time at a couple of community colleges. And eventually I got my full-time job at a community college because I couldn't, I needed to be in this area because, and he was diagnosed by then. Um, to take care of my parents. Um, And it turned out to be a really good fit because it's a lot like the high school students that I worked with in terms of, you know, seeing people grow and learn, kind of find their way, um, but without having to call their mother every time they did something wrong. (laughs) Right. You're dealing with adults. Yeah. (laughs) Because, because I can't actually call their mother. And, and when I've had parents call me, I'm like, I'm sorry. sorry." And so, so it turned out to be a really good fit. And, and the, the biggest lesson I take away is that first of all, I always think family comes first. And so a lot of times when I've, I've had these like twists and turns, it's related to issues with my family. And when I say issues, I don't mean something bad necessarily happening, right, right. but things I need to Circumstances, yeah. Yeah, it, it, yeah, it's more family related. Um, I think we sort of end up where we're meant to be eventually. And um, I think that um, you have to be open to the twists and turns. I think that it's great if somebody knows exactly what they want to do. I have one brother who knew that from the time he was five. He did it. He, you know, he went straight through, did what he needed to do. Um, but I think that um, we don't have to be afraid if, you know, we start something that, well, it's not really what I want. I've done that three or four times. Yeah, yeah I thought this was what I wanted. But yeah, really, yeah. once I got into the job, it was really not what I thought. And so I think you have to, to not be afraid to um, move on to something else. Now, I don't mean just quit your job and just 
jump into something else. I think you have to plan and prepare. And I did that. I I never just like quit. And, but um, I think you have to keep your eyes open and see what might be there. Um, I've gone back to writing. I've done a ton of writing since, you know, in the last few years, I've published chapters and all kinds of things. And so um, I think there are ways to combine a lot of things. And I think that sometimes we can be very creative in how we design our jobs. Some jobs you cannot. Some jobs you cannot, but some job, I mean, some fields you have more flexibility to kind of design your own way um, sort of thing. Yeah, Yeah, my daughter is about to transfer to Oregon State, and um, I think I can tell she has the mindset that choosing a major is so important that somehow it's a contract for life in a way. Is that, well, if I'm going to be an environmental science major, how am I going to do, what if I want to do something else, right? And I think you're a testament. And even my work, more or less, that you can dive into other areas. And, and I think it would be interesting just if you just talk to strangers and talk about what work they're in and then ask them, well, what did you study in school? A lot of times you won't see a connection, right? Because right. we make all these changes because of life circumstances or right. interests and passions right. change. Right. It's okay right. to be flexible. My, yeah. My brother um, graduated from the Naval, one of my brothers graduated from the Naval Academy with a degree in history, which... He was um, an officer on a surface warfare ship. Um, When he um, retired from active duty, he was in the active reserve. So he did go back and forth a lot. But he started a company with his best friend that managed homeowners associations. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) And he had, um, I don't know that he ever took a business course. I mean, they don't give a huge amount of business courses at the Naval Academy. Right. I mean, you, I mean, yeah. now he certainly had engineering courses because they also get a lot of engineering courses. But um, and he actually just sold the company um, and retired in you know mm-hmm. recently. Um, but it was a very successful company. I mean, you know, obviously the first they started on a card table in my mom's basement. Right. That was their first office, and and then gradually it got to where he bought his own building. Yeah. So, um, you know, and that, and along the way, he would still do a lot of coaching with teams of his kids and other kinds of things. I don't know if, if that was always his dream, but he wanted a family and it was a way to support them. And, um, when he started, he was working with his best friend from high well, from third grade. And, um, so, you know, you look at that and you're going, okay, that wasn't really what, you know, I thought he'd be he he seemed like he would be in the Navy forever. Right. A, he was, a career but, military. But he yeah. stayed as, as active reserve. So sometimes we're like, he's gone as much now as he was when he was active duty. Um, you know, but <laughs> whatever. So, but, yeah. so I think you can, you just have to kind of not get set. And I know the younger you are, the harder that is. Yeah. Because a lot vi- of people. To, like, to visualize. Yeah. Well, and people yeah. are always saying, you've got to choose. And you do have to choose a major at some point, right? You have to have a major. Yeah. But I think that taking all of the really hard courses, the sciences, the math, the calculus, all of that, taking the writing courses, doing that keeps all of your options open so that even if you then go on and major in biology or whatever, you've got all these, or you decide you're going to major in philosophy, you've got all these courses there in your bank. You can change your mind much more easily when you get out. Right. So it's about having all of the things you might need to be prepared. Um, Especially, 
like you say, in classes that you normally maybe think that you would not enjoy or not as quote unquote fun, like the the trigonometries and the calculuses, right? And you're thinking, well, how is that going to apply to my life? I don't really enjoy math and science, but you just never know that, you know, you may have a switch. I saw, I saw one of those like builder shows where they were having trouble fitting like flooring in. And one of the guys was, was, I don't know, took a piece and was jamming. He says, and that is physics. And that is why you actually do use things you've learned in high school. And so, right. so, you know, it's kind of like, you will use some of these things. You may not, you're not going to use them necessarily mm-hmm. every day, but I think all of that helps you be prepared. And that's the, the key is being prepared for as many options. So it expands your options. Whereas if you don't take any of that, your options are really very limited. Right. I agree. I totally agree. And, and I'm in my, I'm almost 55 and I'm thinking, I don't know if I'm going to do this for the rest of my life, my working life, right? There may be other things that I may want to pursue. I may end up working at a national park as a park ranger or, or uh, a volunteer giving tours, <laughs> you know, somewhere. It, it just never know. Well, I, I was watching Jeopardy last night and they, I don't know if you watch Jeopardy, but the woman yeah, named too, Schneiderman yeah. Who has won now like 39 games is the second most games ever won. And um, one of the questions they were asking her, because they have to chit chat with the contestants, is, um, and I think she's an engineering manager. So she must hmm. have a science background in there um, somewhere. And um, said, So what are you going to do now? And she said, I don't really know because, well, first of all, she's going to keep playing Jeopardy, obviously. But she said, All of a sudden, there are a lot more options. I mean, you know, you go on Jeopardy, you think you're going to win a couple of games, then all of a sudden, yeah. now you, you know, you've like, who, who knows what might come about. Right. And so I think, you know, we don't know what's going to happen. And I think keeping as many options open, being prepared for those options is really the key to, to living well today. Yeah. Yeah. And also for students out there, when you start your freshman year of college majoring in something, thinking I'm preparing myself for this job or this kind of job, by the time you graduate, that job, not, not to be negative, that job might not exist or might evolve into something different or a brand new set of work environments are created, right? I mean, who thought teachers would have to be able to teach remote synchronously? Who right. thought that they would have to be able to, to juggle both teaching um, via something like Zoom while you're in the classroom dealing with students in front of you. I, I would bet that teacher training programs are, are now going to have to include some courses on, because they do include how-to courses. They're going to have yeah. to include courses on that Yep. because Definitely. nobody was prepared. And now I don't see that ever going back to not being a part of education. Right. I agree. Yeah. I think we, especially you, we're, we were ahead of our time when we were one of the few who prefer and see, saw the value of online classes. No, I didn't want to miss baseball games. If I taught <laughs> online, it meant I didn't have to go out to campus twice a week <laughs> in the summer at night. Right. So right. it meant that I, I literally, that's why I, I volunteered for the training. Yeah. Because I didn't want to have to keep teaching summer school at night. Yeah. And drive out to College Park twice a week. I think for me, when the opportunity came up, it was more about, hey, that's kind of cool. 
right? It's something new and I wanted to try it. I didn't have a grand design that I'll be an online educator. It was was almost as if everybody else took a step back and I took half a step forward and then that was it. Then I became sort of the online teaching specialist, part of committees for distance learning and all that, you know, you just sort of when, yeah, you, when you hang right. in one place long enough, suddenly you're the leader of something. Right. Yeah. I, I didn't yeah. go into it like, oh, I think this will be great. I did it for other reasons. For other reasons. And, yeah. and, it, and it turned out to be a good fit. Um, mm-hmm. And certainly it's helped me get some jobs along the way and do some other things. Yeah. But I, I never, of course, I was, I started before your time and we had to be trained in person. We couldn't even do the training online, which I now find really sort of amusing that train you to be an online teacher, but you have to come do this in person. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's, um, yeah, it, it didn't start out as something that I thought was going to be fabulous. I just didn't want to have to keep driving on the beltway and <laughs> yeah. spend five hours practical. going yeah, back yeah. and forth. Got to be practical. Well, I think this is a great point to have a pause. Okay. And I have a feeling we talked about so many different things that I think hopefully will be helpful for future career psychologists and students, um, ranging from just understanding the licensing issues and also just the general idea that you you have some flexibility in your education and plan and have a good foundation of a wide variety of classes early on, like in high school or early college. So if you want to change to something else, it makes it a lot easier. You're prepared Mm, for it, it, right? And and so I, I might split this our conversation into two different weeks of of podcasts that's that's fine too however you want to do it yeah yeah (laughs) so let's take a pause now gather ourselves and and we'll start another recording in a moment thanks thanks our podcast is sponsored by better help you know friends maintaining our mental health is not easy and the good news is that therapy does work and what is therapy is really whatever you choose it to be. It can help you with your motivation. Maybe you're feeling stuck and you need some extra tools to help get you unstuck. Maybe you're feeling insecure in a relationship or having issues at work or just dealing with daily stress. So whatever it is you need, it's important to overcome that sense of shame about getting help because you deserve to be happy. And now you don't have to worry about finding an in-person therapist near you to help. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, or live chat sessions with your therapist. So you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy. And you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. So... Join the millions of people who are seeing what online therapy is really about. It's always a good time to invest in yourself and your mental health. So, I have a special offer for Psychology Concepts Explained listeners. You can get 10% off your first month of professional therapy at betterhelp.com slash psychexplained. That's better, H-E-L-P, dot com slash psych explained. Thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring our podcast.